You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On this 136th episode of the Root Simple Podcast, we talk to author and gardening expert Robert Pavlis about how to improve your soil, how to start seedlings in the winter, how to take care of houseplants, and much, much more. Before we get to the conversation, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers at the I Planted a Row of Arugula tier and above. So thank you to David and Sandy, Denise and Robert. Thank you also to longtime patron Michael in Canada. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. Robert Pavlis lives on six acres of land that he has developed into a large private garden he calls Aspen Grove Gardens that contains around 3,000 perennials, grasses, shrubs, and trees in southern Ontario, Canada. He is a master gardener, speaker, and author on gardening subjects with a background in chemistry and biology. Now, normally I go over questions with guests before we begin, but Robert and I just started talking. So we'll join the conversation midstream as Robert is telling me about his upcoming book, Soil Science for Gardeners. So here's my interview with Robert Pavlis. Are you working on another book? Well, I, I just I finished uh, one just recently. It's uh, called uh, Soil Science for Gardeners. Oh, okay. And that, that one's going to be done through a publisher. It's finished now. Um, I guess going through final approval of things. Uh, and it should be available in March. I'll get copies in, in late January. Cool. I'm looking forward to that. And I, yeah, I was. I, I think it's. I, well, I hope it's going to be. Uh, people are going to like it. It's a, uh, a little more technical than some of the other gardening books, but it's not you know a real sciencey book. Mm -hmm. So it's it's written for home gardeners. But science based, and, if I know you. It's. Yeah, it's, well, it's like my Garden Mist blog. It's very science-based. It's very factual. It's it's very. It's got a lot of information in there, and not a lot of discussion of things. Like here, here's the facts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then I go through, and there's a bunch of uh, uh, myths that I debunk, uh, just a, as a way of discussing di different things. There, there really isn't a chapter on myths or anything. Mm -hmm. And then it's. Divided into three groups. So the, the first part of it is the background information you need to know. The second part is all about self-assessing your own soil to try and understand what problems you might have. And then the third section is remediation. What can you do to improve your soil? And it's designed so that a person can actually go through their own process with their own soil and, and figure out what the problems are and then come up with a... Um, an improvement plan, multi-year improvement plan for their own particular soil. So uh, usually I, I begin by going over the questions we're going to go over, but I, I'm kind of interested in this book. So I want to ask you some more questions, maybe just on the record now. Um, I, do, does, it, does the process start with like a soil test, sending out a soil test and looking at that? Is that, is that kind of your methodology? A part it can be. Uh, I one thing I I do is I try to get let people understand what a soil test really does. And I think for uh, you know small farmers or market growers and so on, where their livelihood depends on the food they're producing, I think that soil test is critical. For many backyard gardeners, I I, I don't really think it is that important because most backyard gardeners are over fertilizing. With synthetic fertilizer, just with too much organic matter, manure and compost and so on. And the the second problem you have is that the results from those tests are, are all designed for maximizing production on a farm. So I send my sample in and they they say, well, what crop are you growing? And I say, well, I grow a whole bunch of things. And they say, well, that's not good enough. You got to pick one. So I say, OK, I'm growing tomatoes. So I will get results for maximizing the yield of a tomato grown in my soil. Well, that doesn't do me any good if I'm growing different types of vegetables, and it's almost useless if I'm doing mostly landscape-type uh, plants, you know, perennials and annuals and so on, uh, because the, the numbers really don't tell me anything. I'm not, in those cases, I'm not trying to maximize production. The other problem is 
most of the soil testing is is designed for people who will then follow it up with synthetic fertilizers because again it's all about production so uh, you know I'm sitting here uh, in spring what do I need to get in my soil to get my tomatoes really big and get a big yield by August and uh, if you're going to use organic material for your feeding of the soil improving soil well, that's a slow feed, so you don't really get information. They don't. They won't come back and say, "Well, you should use, you know, X pounds of compost and so much blood meal and so on." They won't give you that information. the The recommendations will be use synthetic fertilizer. So, if you're an organic gardener, I'm not sure how useful those results are either. Now, there are there are a number of tests though that you can do with your soil to check other things. Uh, so there's things like uh, you can check the compaction, so there's a, a test for that, the, the amount of percolation you get, so how, how quickly does the water go through your soil. Um, measuring the organic matter content can be useful, and that has to be done through through a lab. So there are a number of uh, tests that you can run yourself where you don't actually need a lab, and you get some pretty good uh, data from that, uh, and that will give you some idea. When it comes down to it, your goal really is to improve the soil. And almost everybody's soil uh, it is lacking in organic matter. The The exception would be containers and people who use raised beds and where they've gone and, and made an artificial type of soil that has a lot of organic matter in it. But if we're talking about flat ground where someone's growing, you don't find too many of those that have high organic matter levels. It's usually the opposite, particularly if you're garden, you know, the new neighborhood, for instance, and uh, your house is built on what used to be farmland, it's almost certainly low in organic matter. So a lot of, you can do a lot to the soil just by improving uh, the organic matter level, um, mulching, um, and then there's other aspects to it. Um, we, we look at um, how water moves across the soil, uh, you know, is it puddling in areas, uh, have you got crusting on your soil? Um, so there's, some, there's also some chemical issues, uh, if you've got salty soil, uh, and so on. And some of that can be tested in a lab. Some of it you can sort of test yourself. Some of it you can evaluate just by looking how plants are growing. So then that's why the, the book kind of took the approach of having a very personalized uh, process to improve it, because everyone's goals are going to be a little different. Right, and is it climate specific? Are you you're in uh, Guelph, Ontario, and um, so is it specifically for where you are? Is it a more general book? No, there has very little to do with climate. Um, the process of testing your soil is the same everywhere. The uh, steps you would take to improve your soil is pretty much the same everywhere. Where there's some small differences are things like cover crops, for instance. Uh, you know, we have a very short growing season. So if I'm harvesting tomatoes until, you know, mid-September, I don't have a big window between that and, say, the 1st of November to grow cover crops. So I have to be really choosy on which ones I pick. Whereas if I'm in a warmer climate, after my tomatoes are harvested, I may have three, three months to grow a good cover crop. So that, there's a little difference there. But other than that, pretty much everything else is the same. It doesn't really matter where, where you are. Uh, warm climates like yours, uh, you would use up organic matter faster. Um, so that there's a little difference. Whereas in, in winter here, their ground pretty much stops. And there's not my, much microbial action. We're not using up organic matter because everything's just too cold to really do much. But again, that, that really doesn't impact how you go about changing your soil too much. And what if I'm interested in growing native plants? Uh, do I still need to go through the <clears throat> process of improving the soil and adding organic matter? Well, uh, that depends. You see, that the, there, there's, I think there's a big misconception that we have is that we have this native soil here, and if I go out and buy native plants and bring them in and plant them, I have a native ecosystem. But that's not really true. Because the starting point for my garden is not a native soil. You know, unless this is an older home and someone's been gardening here for 20 years, my soil compared to what is native in, in a field nearby or in the woods nearby 
is pretty degraded already. It's very low in organic matter. It's very low in aggregation. Uh, it's it's low in micro populations, and so uh, if I really want a true native area, I do want to build up my soil. Now, the flip side of that is I can take most native plants and plant them and they will do just fine. They just will not do as well as they might do in better soil. So, and doing soil tests is, is almost useless. So if I go to a lab and say, here's my sample, uh, do a soil test, and they measure the, the phosphate and potassium and calcium and so on, they can't give me a recommendation because there is no recommendation available for native plants. And there's no recommendation for any horticultural type plants, perennials, trees and shrubs, whatever. If it's not an agricultural uh, crop, the labs have not come up with recommendations for those, those values. Mm -hmm. So they really can't tell you what to put on your soil. So there, there's not much point in getting the soil test done. Uh, that, that's not entirely true because if, if one of your nutrients is really, really low and it comes back on the test, you'll know, well, I, I need to add some of that. But the recommendations for adding nutrients to your soil will almost certainly be wrong. And you, you pretty much want to ignore them. So I'm not sure the real value of a soil test. Mm -hmm. So I actually take a, a different approach is I, I plant stuff and I watch to see if it grows. And most things grow. And you don't need a soil test then because the stuff is growing. And in that kind of a situation, in a natural landscape, I don't want maximum production. I don't want a, you know, a maple tree that I just planted to grow as fast as possible. In fact, I prefer it to grow slower. Because if it grows too fast, it gets too big too fast. So for most natural landscapes, you're not in a big hurry to get maximum crops, right? Maximum berry production mm -hmm. and, and so on. And that's what all the soil tests is focused on. They're, they're not saying you need to add fertilizer to grow things. They're saying you need to add fertilizer to maximize the yield. And natural landscapes, people don't care to maximize the yield. In fact, things actually grow better if they grow a little slower. Right? You, you, you're looking at a long-term plan here where you, you plant various perennials and shrubs and so on, and you want them to hang around for the next 20 years. And if they grow it a couple inches taller, you don't really care. So why, why put in the extra fertilizer to make them grow a little better? So then it becomes a process of observation then. Is that what you're, you're saying, that you look at um, a certain yeah. set of plants and, and learn to, to diagnose problems? Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Yeah. My, my approach is plant stuff, and if it grows, don't worry about the nutrients in your soil. Um, but now we're going to do things that we know your soil probably needs. You know, we're going to add some organic matter. That's always good. Uh, we're going to add some mulch, preferably organic mulch of some type that does all kinds of things for the soil and adds organic matter to the soil. So along the way, we're going to do things to improve that soil. Uh, when I uh, cut things in the garden, you know, I, I just drop them where they are. I, I don't haul them away. So all the vegetation that's growing in an area needs to stay there. And over time, that will improve your soil. Um, but what I don't do is go and feed anything. So when I'm planting things, I, I don't put anything into the planting hole. I don't amend it in any way. Uh, and I never fertilize anything. My philosophy is that you just, you just plant it and, and it probably will grow. And if it doesn't grow, it probably is something that you're not going to be able to control anyways. Uh, you, For instance, you know, there's things I can't grow here because it's just too cold Mm -hmm. in the winter and they die mm -hmm. right uh, but if they can survive the winter and they kind of like my clay type soil and my ph is about 7.3 7.4 and they they can survive that so i i can't grow things like rhododendrons very well because they want much lower ph um, but as long as my soil is more or less in the ballpark and my weather conditions are more or less right things will grow yeah, and, and i think gardeners worry too much mm. about these things 
Well, jumping ahead, I know you sent me an email with a bunch of suggested topics. And uh, on the line of looking at our soils, uh, what are your thoughts about um, the fun fungi inoculant products? There's been a lot of publicity about this in the past few years, about adding various kinds of uh, mycorrhizal fungi to the soil. Well, um, so we have a couple situations we can look at. If In most soil, the mycorrhizal fungi are already there. Uh, if it's uh, recently farmed land, the number may be low, but they're there, and we don't have to add more. If we have soil that's that's really terrible soil, so this might be a new subdivision where you know they've removed all the topsoil, they brought in heavy equipment, everything's compacted, and now we're left with really crappy, crappy soil, and nothing is in there. The problem with inoculants is if I take fungal inoculants and put them in that soil they won't survive because the soil isn't ready for them. Okay, you, you cannot take fungal spores, put them in a place where they don't grow and expect them to grow just because you put them there. They just die. So you have to first improve the soil. And as you're improving soil, and around new homes a lot of times it's, it's a compaction issue, as you're adding, uh, as you're fixing that compaction, the fungal spores will arrive because they're floating around in the air everywhere. So I've actually talked to three different researchers who work with mycorrhizal fungi, and they all agree that purchasing the product and putting it into soil is not going to do very much. Now, the one possible exception are things like potted plants or plants in containers because there, there are no fungal spores in there. And if you take those and add the mycorrhizal fungi, uh, you can actually get better growth from it. But a lot of that depends on how much you're fertilizing. Most people with potted plants over-fertilize. Mm. And particularly phosphate, if you put too much phosphate in that soil, you're going to kill your mycorrhizal fungi because they're very sensitive to high levels of phosphate. So as long as you're fertilizing enough, you don't really need the mycorrhizal fungi in, in containers. Mm -hmm. uh, so the consensus, the scientific consensus certainly is that they're not really adding a, a lot to a garden situation. Now there are a few specialized agricultural applications where they are beneficial, but they're very specific cases, a certain particular crop growing in a certain type of soil, uh, a lot of times it's related to disease issues that were in the soil before the crops put in. There are some scenarios like that that are beneficial. But for the average home gardener, they, they really aren't that, that useful. The other thing that has been done is, is there was a study on the West Coast, I think Washington, who went out and, and bought like 20 of these products. Not just mycorrhizal fungi, but also ones with bacterial cultures in them. And then they tested them and did DNA analysis on them. And they actually found that at least half the products did not have the species in it that they claimed to be. Oh. Okay, so you weren't actually getting the bacteria or fungi you were actually buying. Wow. Um, so mycorrhizal fungi are sensitive to heat. So these containers have to be stored a certain way. Uh, the home gardener has no way of knowing whether this container is alive or dead. Like you can't, you know, open it up and sniff it or something, or do some sort of simple test and say, "Hey, the mycorrhizal fungi are alive. I, I can use them." So you're basically going on faith that the material was put in the container in the first place, and that along the way, the way it was shipped and, and stored and so on, they haven't died. Wow. So the, the alternative then you're suggesting is actually very low tech. You're just, um, you're mulching, you're aerating. How do you actually, how do you open up the soil if it's compacted? That's really difficult. Um, so if, if I had a new home situation and I knew it was really compacted, probably the first thing I would do is, is dig it up. Either, you know, with a broad fork works well. Uh, you know, a shovel if you need to, a rototiller, whatever you, you want to use. Uh, but you want to go through and, and try and loosen that up once. Okay, that's a one-time process. At the same time, you want to mix in organic matter because almost 
always when you have a compaction like that around a home, uh, it also is low in organic matter. So you mix some organic matter in as you're digging this up, and that's your starting point. And after that, you, you don't dig anymore. Okay, You don't come along and, and rototill gardens annually. You don't come along and dig them. The best thing you can do for soil is to touch it as little as possible. The other thing you want to do is you want to mulch it. So you want to uh, keep the soil covered because it, it keeps moisture in the soil. It prevents compaction. Raindrops actually are, are pretty powerful at compacting soil. So we want to keep the raindrops from hitting the soil, and, and mulch does that. Uh, mulch keeps the soil cooler, which uh, plant roots like. Uh, and if it's an organic mulch, then slowly that organic mulch decomposes and gets added to the soil. But that's a slow process. Uh, taking soil that's heavily compacted and coming up with good soil is, is a many-year process. That's not something you're going to do in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite source of organic material and com uh, compost and also of, of mulch? Well, I don't actually use much compost. I stopped making my own compost years ago, and what I do now is I just, whatever I have in the garden, I drop. I so see. if I'm deadheading, I drop it. If uh, Right now, my garden has no uh, fall cleanup, so pretty much everything's still standing. In the spring, I'll come along and just knock off anything that's above ground. So if we, if we talk about a hosta, for instance, by spring, the leaves will all be sitting on the ground, right where the plant grows. The flower stems will still be up vertical, and I'll take those off just so it looks a little neater. But I'll take them, cut them up, and drop them right where the plant is, and then I'll leave it. And in three weeks, the plant's big enough that covers all that up, and two months from now, it's, it's completely composted. So I don't move anything away. I do mulch with wood chips, and I like wood chips because it's it's readily available in, in some areas, and, and certainly in my areas. Uh, we, can, we can get them fairly easily. We have the ash borer problem, so we have lots and lots of dead trees right now, so we've, we'll have lots of wood chips for 10 years. It's organic. It decomposes slowly. It only has to be replaced every three to four years, depending on how big the chips are and how fresh it is. So you just go through your garden every once in a while and, and top up areas that are getting low and then you just, you just leave it. Wood chips have a tremendous impact on the number of weeds you have. So I, I've taken, not actually planned, I haven't planned this experiment, but I just had an area where I had something planted so I put wood chips around the plants and then an area right next to it that so I had nothing there. And within a few weeks, it, the, this, without wood chips, it's just covered in weeds. Wherever the wood chips are, you get almost no weeds. So it makes gardening easier, uh, keeps moisture in the soil for the plants. The roots like the coolness. Uh, it, it's just a great solution, I think. And very slowly over the years, the soil underneath gets better and better and better. But going back to that initial, if someone does have compacted soil, what sort of organic matter are you, are you talking about there? Uh, well, my, my recommendation is always to get what's cheap. And, and not because it's cheap, but it usually means it hasn't been trucked very far. So get something that's local. So around here, I can get horse manure quite easily, and the horse manure is great for the garden. It has low amounts of uh, nitrogen, so it doesn't really burn plants. It also has a high level of uh, undigested plant material in it, so it's great for the garden. Uh, if you're local to some industry that produces a waste product, for instance, the other thing we have in Ontario is mushroom farms. So not too far from me, I can go down and get free mushroom manure as much as I want. Uh, so that would be a good option because, again, it's, it's a local source and it's not being shipped around. And I think that shipping that kind of stuff defeats the whole purpose of using it. Mm -hmm. I, a lot of times, in, not just in gardening, but in our whole way of life, we always ignore the shipping as, as having a large environmental impact. So I could order um, a redwood 
uh, chips and wood chips from what the West Coast, and I can even get them from Florida apparently. Uh, but that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? Why would I ship that stuff over when, you know, someone locally has some organic waste? So things like cocoa beans, uh, corn, chopped up corn husks, anything that's plant-related that you can get locally is probably your best choice. And as far as the MPK values go, they're almost all about the same. It really doesn't matter. You, you can compost it first or you can use it direct as a mulch. It's entirely up to you. It doesn't really make a lot of difference. But use something that's local. Well, and if people read your website, I think they'll find themselves buying less stuff, <laughs> a lot less <laughs> stuff. Speaking of which, one of the things actually you mentioned I have very strong feelings about from having, having done it the wrong way, which is landscape fabric. When we first moved into our house, that's one of the things we put down, and it's been 20 years of pulling up horrible little pieces of plastic ever since. That's my thought on it, but what, what do you yeah. think of landscape fabric? Well, I think we're pretty much in agreement there. What I find is uh, landscapers love it because for the first year or so after they leave, everything looks pretty nice. You know, not too many weeds, low maintenance, everything looks great. But three years later and five years later, the, the landscape fabric is showing. Weeds start growing above it and roots go through it. Uh, landscape plants or so shrubs and trees, their roots actually come up through it and get tangled in it. So when you do try to remove it, you've got to rip all these roots off your plants to try and get it out. Uh, there really is, there's almost no reason for having landscape fabric, in my opinion. There are a couple places where it works. So if you're doing a like a rock wall and you want to put some landscape behind the rocks to just keep the dirt from, you know, running out from through the rocks, that that sort of works there. But I would never put it on soil, horizontal soil. Uh, it doesn't keep weeds down in the long run. It's not a good mulch. Uh, it reduces the amount of water that gets into the soil, and there's just no real good arguments for it. I have had some professionals tell me, well, there's there's higher levels of quality of the stuff. And, you you know, they told me, well, you didn't use the, the better stuff. You just, you just use the big box store stuff. And, you know, there's a, there's a better kind of landscape fabric. It, you, what do you think of that? Well, it, it, it lasts longer. The better quality lasts longer. But it has the same problems because it's made exactly the same way. It's, it's essentially a sheet of plastic with holes in it. And if you put down a sheet of plastic with holes in it, I don't care how good the quality is, it prevents water from getting to your soil because the water tends to run more off of it than soak in. And plant roots can get into very, very tiny holes. So unless this is a solid piece of plastic, plant roots will grow down and will grow up. Um, the real problem I find with the stuff is that uh, you usually put it down and you cover it with some sort of mulch, some like wood chips or something. And then organic matter slowly filters down through the wood chips until it reaches the plastic. And it sits there. And for a couple of years, that's not an issue. But in a few years, that organic matter that's sitting above the plastic is a perfect seedbed. So seeds now come down, they germinate. This soil is great because it's just basically like peat moss, and the roots start growing in it, and you have weeds. Okay, There's, there's no way it can stop weeds because it's, it's not really the, the, the plastic that's the problem. It's the fact that above the plastic is this layer of organic matter, which is a great seed bed. So I don't, I don't care how good the stuff is. It's going to react the same way. The difference is that it may last longer before it starts tearing apart and, and ripping and, and so on, but it doesn't really solve the problem. Right. Yeah, your thoughts on cardboard, because that's another popular uh, thing to do. Well, this, this is very interesting. So that's called sheet mulching by a lot of people, or lasagna gardening. Mm -hmm. Now, lasagna gardening is actually something different, but a lot of people use that term. So I use it in, in a situation where you know, I put down one layer of cardboard or newspaper, then I put something on top, it could be soil, it could be um, compost, it could be wood chips, something on top. And the real goal of this is to kill all the vegetation that was there before 
And a lot of times that's a lawn, right? Someone has a lawn, they want to turn it into a flower bed. Right. This is a great way to kill that grass. So many, many people do it. And within a certain period of time, the cardboard and newspaper decompose, which adds a little organic matter to the soil. I think very little organic matter, actually. And it's really the, the wrong kind of organic matter, but it doesn't harm the soil. The weeds are certainly killed because the cardboard keeps the light off of them. So the weeds die down and you have a garden and away you go. And I think it works really well. Now, there are a few people who say it's a terrible thing to do to your soil because it prevents air from getting to the soil. It keeps water from getting to the soil. And all of the microbes and so on under that cardboard are going to die. And I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but the garden professors are adamant that this is a horrible thing to do. Um, but there's been a recent study out just this past year. In fact, I think it came out in July. And what that study showed was that the oxygen levels under the cardboard don't change. So the fear before was that the, the soil can't breathe, you, you don't get proper air exchange, and that you don't get enough oxygen into that soil, and then you do damage because of the lack of oxygen. Well, it, it turns out that study doesn't show that. In fact, it, what it shows is that the oxygen levels in regular soil and soil covered in cardboard are exactly the same. So the lasagna method is, is not harming your soil. Besides, it's generally a short-term process. Now, I would tend to use newspaper instead of cardboard, uh, certainly in my climate. Now, you know, down where you are, it, it may be different, but uh, the master gardeners here took an area and put down cardboard covered in wood chips, and a year later, that cardboard was still completely intact. So in our climate, it, it's, it's more than a year to have that decompose properly. Newspaper is much faster. Now, in a warm climate, the cardboard may decompose, you know, much more quickly and may, may be less of an issue. But I would stick to newspaper. It works just as well. It decomposes faster. Um, yeah. But I've, there doesn't seem to be any scientific reason not to do it. I've had the problem here of it, like you said earlier, of, of completely keeping water out of the soil in, you know, this lot more drier climate, which it's kind of why I, I don't do it. I I. I I don't know. I just do mulch like you do. It's deeper mulch. I was wondering um, on this kind of related to this, if you have any thoughts on hugel culture, which is uh, seems to be one of those trends that's uh, come around. If if you've looked into that at all, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I haven't done a deep dive in that yet. Um, the problem with it is that very few people have actually studied it. So if you actually want to see a scientific uh, research project that looks at it and see if there's real benefits or what the benefits are and so on, it's, it's almost non-existent. So right. there's a lot of procedures. There's a lot of people that believe in it. Uh, I think there's probably some aspects to it that do make some sense. Is it the best way or and so on? I, I'm not sure that we can actually say that. Okay, so one of the things they tend to do is to bury logs, right, big chunks of wood in the soil, and they absorb moisture, and they keep the soil moist that way. They kind of pile it up in a big hill, and I, I know a place locally where that has happened naturally. They, they did some lumbering in that area, and they left a pile of logs, and those logs are now covered in moss and soil, and, and all kinds of things are growing on top of it. And the plants that are there are actually quite happy. But that doesn't mean it's a good gardening technique. So I'm, I'm skeptical that it's really worth doing. But I also don't see a lot of harm in using it. And again, it, it may depend very much on your climate, right? If you're in a very dry climate and you have limited water resources, it may actually be a good way to keep water in the soil. In our climate, we tend to have the opposite problem, uh, except for July and August. The rest of the year is, is almost too wet. And so we kind of have you know that opposite problem, and then we have two months that are very dry. But I, I don't really go out of my way to keep moisture in my soil the rest of the year. 
Well, uh, speaking of different climates, you start your seeds indoors there, or some seeds, I assume. Um, and I know you have some thoughts on the best methods for that. Um, how, uh, how do you start your seeds indoors? And what sort of uh, technology do you use to do that? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> the way I do it is a little different than I, I might recommend to, to other people. I think there's two ways that are really interesting. And we're talking about seeds here that are a little more difficult to germinate, say, than our average vegetable seeds. Like if you want to start tomatoes early indoors, those are pretty easy to germinate. You can do them any way you want and they're going to germinate. But if you want to start growing some trees and shrubs, some perennials, uh, some native plants can be very tricky to germinate. Then you want to look at a couple of other options. The first option I recommend to people who are just starting out and haven't really done a lot with seeds is something called winter sowing. And I'm going to guess this doesn't really work well in your climate. <laughs> um, but I don't actually know that. But I'm going to guess that. So what we do with, with uh, winter sowing is we go out sometime in January. And I used to do it between Christmas and New Year's when there's not much else to garden around here. And you get yourself some containers. They can be milk jugs or two-liter pop bottles, some kind of plastic where some light can go through. They don't have to be clear. You cut them in half, so you have sort of a top and a bottom. You put some holes in the bottom, put some soil in, put your seeds on top, put the top on, water it once, and put it out in the snow. And they just sit out there in January, February, March, April, and you don't have to do anything to them. The nice thing is that they go through a natural cold spell, which is important for a lot of seeds. And they experience that spring change in temperature. So, you know, warm day, cool night, lots of fluctuations up and down. And that really gets a lot of seeds germinating. And what you end up with is really tiny seeds seedlings but they're really tough so when when you do these seeds under lights you know they're three inches tall and they're kind of scraggly looking and out there they're they're like a couple millimeters high really tough and it's so easy you you until it gets really warm you don't even have to water these things now the snow is not important so this will work in any climate that gets close to zero or or some co quite cold temperatures the same thing will work because the snow isn't really doing a lot out there. Although around here, they just get covered in snow and we don't worry about it. Leave them alone. And in fact, uh, the other thing I've been up to is uh, I now have a YouTube channel called Garden Fundamentals. And there's actually a video there to show you how to do winter sowing. Yeah. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes, of course. And, and I love that because it's so easy for a beginner to, to get familiar with some of these seeds. The technique I use for most things is what I call the baggy technique. And I also have a video on that. And I basically take some uh, paper towels and I use some uh, thicker towels than you normally use in the kitchen, but you can get them at places like Home Depot and, and uh, other lumber centers. And you put them in a little baggie, you put in some water, you put in the seeds, and you just let them sit. And then I treat them based on what the seeds need. And there are some good libraries online about what certain seeds need. So you actually look up that species and find out, does it need a cold period? Does it need to be scarified? Does it need to be soaked before you start the germination process? And each of these weird seeds have a different requirement. So you give it that requirement, you put it in the baggie, and you just leave it. And sometimes they go in the fridge for two or three months and then they come out in the warm room. Sometimes they just sit in a warm room. And by warm, I mean just normal temperatures is warm enough. If they don't germinate warm, then they need to go back in the fridge and get some more cool temperature. And so we cycle it warm, cool, warm, cool and until they, they germinate. Most things will germinate in two or three months. So if I start the seeds in January, usually by spring, which is March, I have seedlings from those things. But there are some tough seeds. Um, I did a, a shrub recently, it's called Halicia. And I got the seeds from my friend, and it took me five years of moving them in and out of the fridge before wow. they finally germinated. <laughs> That's kind of an extreme. Uh, but I also have some peony seeds sitting right on my desk now. 
peony seeds can be slow and they just sit here and sit here until I see a little root come out. And when the root comes out, I let it grow till it's about three inches long. And then they go into the fridge for a cool down because peonies will make roots warm, but they won't make the shoot, the, the, the leaves in the warmth. They need a cold period to trigger the growth of the leaves. So you germinate them warm develop some roots, then you put them in the fridge, start developing the leaves, then you pull them out of there and pot them up. And that generally takes about a year, uh, eight months, 12 months, give or take. So the baggy method is, is a great method for uh, more difficult seeds. The nice thing about the bag is that you, it takes up very little space compared to putting things into pots. You can imagine if you have 300 different seeds and they're all in pots and you now have to put them in the fridge for a cool down. You know, like you need a dedicated fridge for that. And so this way, you know, 100, 200 you know, little baggies take up no space at all and they just go into my bar fridge. And they'll sit in there for two or three months and I'll bring them back out again and warm them up and see if they germinate. Now, what are your thoughts about LED lights? So if I was going out today to put a light system into my home, for germinating seeds, I would definitely go with LEDs. Uh, lots of people have used them now and they grow plants really well. There's sort of two categories of LED lights. And there's the shop lights. So these are things you'd find, uh, you know, again at Home Depot. They're sort of four feet long. They look very much like the old fluorescent fixtures. Uh, you won't find a lot of information about uh, you know the type of lights and, and the wavelengths and so on on those but for germinating seeds and for growing low light plants they work fine they're relatively inexpensive uh, in fact they're the prices come down now that they're they're about the same price as fluorescent fixtures uh, the lights will last a long time and use them just like the old fluorescent fixtures you know you need the plants fairly close to the lights um, the closer they are, the more light they get. It's good to have uh, a setup where you have four bulbs, two in each fixture sort of thing. You want reflectors, so as much light as possible gets sent back down to the plant. But there's a whole new category of uh, plant lights, and these are the fancy grow light LEDs that uh, you, you see advertised a lot on places like Amazon. And I noticed my Home Depot now has them too. They're much more expensive. You're typically spending a couple hundred dollars on these things. The amount of light coming out of them is much higher, so they can be farther away from your plants, which makes working with the plants much easier. But they usually don't cover a very big surface. If you look at these, most of them are about the size of a laptop, maybe a couple inches bigger, but they're not big fixtures. And so if you put that above your plants, you're only going to cover like a two foot by two foot square for plants and you're going to spend two or three hundred dollars for this light. So although they would be excellent for plants that need high light, you know, if you're doing orchids or something, they're quite expensive if your goal is to do seedlings because seedlings don't need that high light. I, I would uh, I would use shop lights. Got it. I, I suspect those the, the expensive ones are being used to grow something else, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Something smokable is my well, guess there. But <laughs> that's, what's that's what's driving a large part of that industry. Yeah. I, I don't know if you know, but Canada now, it's legalized across the country, uh -huh. and we can all grow four plants for our own personal use. And so the, the specialized LED light business is really picking up. Because a lot of people want to grow their own. Right. 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 And the same in the U.S. There's several states. The new states seem to keep passing laws to legalize it. I, I don't know if you're allowed to grow it, but at least smoking it is legal. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a whole other topic. Uh, speaking of whole other topics, we could probably spend an hour just on houseplants. Uh, and we're about at the end of our hour here. But I am curious about, because houseplants, oh my God, it's so crazy popular now. All over Instagram, New York Times was covering it. Um, 
a friend of mine went to a houseplant event here and she's like an avid gardener and was just expecting to find other gardeners but it was this whole other kind of really fashionable scene it was just kind of crazy so it's, it's amazing how how much houseplants have kind of like blown up and you know it's a good thing people are getting into plants so that's i i at least i think it's a good thing but um but they're probably having some trouble taking care of them. And I know you have some thoughts about uh, how to water houseplants. So what are, what are your thoughts on that, of general watering and care of houseplants? Yeah, I find watering one of the most difficult things for people to learn as, as a new gardener. And I'm not really sure why, except I think a lot of the material that's written just goes out of its way to make it complicated. And I think it's really simple. I, I take houseplants and I sort of put them into maybe three categories. Category one is, is orchids. Category two are plants that don't mind drying out. So this thing covers most of the sedums out there. Uh, and number three is more tropical plants. These are things that never want to dry out. They want to stay wet. So the first thing you have to do is figure out which of these you have. Do they mind drying out or, or do they like to wet all the time. The next thing you have to do is figure out how to measure how wet they are. And the simplest thing to do is use your finger. Okay, you don't need a moisture meter, you don't need any fancy equipment. You just take your finger and you stick it in the soil. And if at the same time you lift that pot, in no time at all you'll be able to tell how wet it is just by lifting it. It, it, you can't do that right away, but with some experience, you, you can just tell by, by how heavy it is. But when you start, just use your finger. And it's real simple. If the plant doesn't mind drying out, you're better off letting it dry out until it feels dry, and then water. If it's a plant that likes to be wet all the time, then if it feels dry, you should have watered yesterday. But if you water today, it will be fine. They're not that fussy. And if you do that, it, it really simplifies the watering. One of the reasons I think people have a lot of trouble with this is that people like rules. So on the internet and discussion groups, I constantly pe see people asking, how often do I water this plant? You know, and you'll get a flurry of answers. Oh, I do it once a week. I do it every six days. Mm -hmm. I do this and that. Th that question and the answers don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And here's why. There's, there's all kinds of things that affect how quickly that pot dries out. Uh, the type of plant it is, the size of the root system, the type of soil it's in. Uh, is it in a plastic pot or a clay pot? How big is the pot relative to the plant? What is your humidity? Right? If you're in a cold climate like I am, we've got our furnace going and it gets really dry in the house. In July, it's really moist in the house. Well, that humidity in the air affects how quickly the water leaves the pot. How much light does the plant get? In summer, they get more light. They're growing more. They're absorbing more water. In winter, they get less light. They're growing slower. They're absorbing less water. So all of those factors get put into that equation, and there's no way you're going to figure that out. And there's no way that somebody else can tell you how often to water. So you have to take your own plant, you have to stick your finger in it, and then either water or not water, depending on the type of plant it is. And it's really that simple. Now, orchids, you can take orchids, and I, I did a little experiment one year with the Phalaenopsis orchids. I took it out of the pot, no soil, no nothing. I just set it on my desk, and I was on there for like five weeks and it was fine. Then I went on holidays. So I thought, oh, I better pot it up and start watering it. Five weeks, no water, no soil, just sitting on my desk. And it did not die. People have trouble growing orchids because they're far too nice to their plants. Let them dry out. Let them get bone dry. Then water and leave them again until they're bone dry. You can do the same with cactus, particularly in the winter wintertime. Uh, so any of these succulent-type plants that don't mind drying out, you can do the same thing, but I wouldn't leave them for five weeks. But if, if they go for a week without being watered and they're dry, it's not going to kill the plant. 
All right. Well, I, I think, Robert, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, why don't you say something about you've got uh, two websites, is that correct? And what are we on the fourth book now? So why don't you tell people where people can see your websites and get your books? All right. So most of my contact information now is under the title Garden Fundamentals. I have a YouTube channel under that name, a blog under that name, and a Facebook group under that name. And that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. I also have a blog called GardenMyths.com. And it's been running now for about six years. And several times a month, I post gardening myths. I've published four books now. Uh, one is on building natural ponds. Uh, two books on garden myths, book one and book two. Uh, I do expect to publish book three next year. And then I also have the book uh, Soil Science for Gardeners, which won't be available until February, March, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon. And if you want more information on the books, you can go to any of my websites and you'll see information there about the books. But uh, you can come to my uh, YouTube channel and see things or join our Facebook group and you can ask any kind of questions you want. Great. Well, thank you, Robert, for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It's great being here. That was Robert Pavlis. You can find his blogs at GardenFundamentals.com and GardenMyths.com. He has a YouTube channel called Garden Fundamentals and a Facebook group of the same name. You can find all these links in the show notes for this show at RootSimple.com. Lastly, I want to suggest that you also listen to the Bike Talk podcast produced by a friend of Root Simple. Nick, the producer of Bike Talk, is hoping to get this show on Pacifica Radio, figuring that since Pacifica has a car talk show, even in this age of climate change, they really ought to have a show about bikes and alternative transportation. So in the meantime, you can subscribe and listen to Bike Talk via your favorite podcast app. Now for an apology. It turns out people have been calling our podcast hotline for some time, but I haven't been checking Google Voice, and I just discovered a bunch of unanswered messages, so sorry about that. So on the next episode of this podcast, I hope to respond to some of those long-lost comments and questions uh, that uh, were on our voicemail. If you'd like to add another question, please give us a call at 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. Calls would be more fun, though, and I promise I will check the voicemail more often. We are at Rootsimple on Twitter. You can have our podcast automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. Thank you again to our many supporters, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.